Playing Crazy Down Under's coverage of Air Venture 2011 is proudly sponsored by Jet Ride Australia. Be a top gun for the day. Visit jetride.com.au slash PCDU. Racy Racing, proudly flying the Aussie flag at the Reno Air Races. RacyRacing.com. Aviation Advertiser, Australia's largest aviation marketplace. Make buying and selling easy by doing it online. Visit aviationadvertiser.com.au today. The GA8 Airvan, built down under by Gips Aero. Gipsaero.com. And by Thromby Air, a satirical look at the world of low-cost air travel. Thrombiair.com, the lowest of the low. Well, g'day, folks, and welcome back to Plane Crazy Down Under, the program that looks at the world of aviation from an Australia-Pacific point of view, coming to you once again from Camp Shola here at AirVenture 2011. It's the final full day, at least for us. I'm Steve Vischer. With me is Grant McHeron. G'day, mate. Hey, dude. How you doing? Still suffering in the heat, mate. Oh, mate, the heat, the humidity, the rain, the mud, the dust. It's... Camp Shola. Absolutely, it's been a uh, it's been a whirlwind. David Vanderhoof is with us. David, you're uh, about an hour away from uh, heading away, so we have to uh, make sure that we get you on tape before you leave. Yeah, um, I'm ready to go home. Enough oh. mud, enough sort, much whatever. But it's time. You guys have been great, but I want to go home. He's, he's sick had, of us. He's had enough of the veggie, mate. <laughs> he's sick of his Australian stuff. Joining us also is Bez Sheffers. How are you, mate? I'm good. Just uh, trying to keep my cool here in the heat, but having a great time. Absolutely. Now, of course, we've been a five-man team this week, and someone who's very reluctant to get his voice on uh, on the recording has been our great gaffer, our best boy, our grip. We haven't decided. Gaffer. Mike Wilson. Mike, say hello. Hello. There you go. That's about as many words as we've got out of Mike all week. That's uh, gaffer's best boy, grip. Yeah, we've put about 3,000 miles on his, uh, on his car this week. Plus. It's been very busy. Well, we've got a very uh, packed show. We've got a lot of content we've recorded. Uh, we're going to kick it off uh, talking to Amy Labota from uh, Women in Aviation magazine. You'll also hear her on the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast occasionally. Guys, what other content have we recorded? We've been very, very busy. Oh, mate, I've got so much content. I, I'm going to be trying to produce a whole Kiwi show and a whole Bonanzas to Oshkosh show. There's uh, also a uh, really great set of content we just recorded now from... Uh, from uh, the guys who have the Curtis Pusher and did the barnstorming movie and restored an old uh, movie of the uh, Wright brothers. It's the only movie that shows the two of them together. So all that's going to be coming out in three separate episodes. But that's not what's on this one. Because honestly, I don't know what's on this one because Steve's been controlling that. I see. It's the man in charge of the editing. Uh, We're also going to be talking to another women's group, the 99ers, amongst uh, many others. So I think we'll kick it off there and uh, we'll come back. We've got a lot of thank yous to do as we wrap up our episode. So uh, Grant, let's kick it off. Well, we're sitting here in the uh, the press centre in some lovely air conditioning, which is a pleasant change, and we're here with Amy Laboda from uh, Aviation for Women magazine. Amy, welcome. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Steve. It's a privilege to meet you. I've been listening to you on UCAP for a long time, and, uh, and I've bumped into you a couple of times this week, but I've been looking forward to this interview all week, I can tell you. Well, I've had fun listening to your podcast as well. Well, thank you very you guys, much. You guys have a good time, even if you talk a little funny. Yeah, people <laughs> tell us that, but only people in this country we found, so... <laughs> there you go. So who would listen to that? Well, they tell us we drive on the wrong side of the road as well but hey oh yeah the (laughs) other side of the road you know i do have a driving story from australia and uh, basically what they did is they made me put a rubber band on my left wrist (laughs) (laughs) and then we went around the roundabouts a couple of times it was very very challenging 
not impossible to do because, you know, I sit both in the right seat and the left seat yeah. of an airplane. I can use either hand for the controls, for the, you know, so it really shouldn't be that hard to drive on the other side of the road. Of course, we're sitting here with my friend Mike, and he can tell you all about when he was in Australia and we tried to get him to go through some roundabouts, but uh, <laughs> that's a, probably a whole other story all on its own. He probably doesn't want me to tell it here at the interview right now. <laughs> Didn't go well for you, did it? <laughs> now, Amy, you've been in aviation for a very long time. You're a uh, certified flying instructor, instrument, yes, and many, many other things. Air, airline transport, all those things, that's right. Yep. And how did you come to be involved in aviation? What was the thing that kicked it off for you right at the oh, beginning? my dad. My dad was flying in 1965, and he did it to get to football games. He was a surgeon in town, and he couldn't be out of town for very long because he was the surgeon in those days in town. So anybody had some kind of trauma to the face, they'd call him. Right. And in order to get to the football game, which was a very long drive across the Everglades and back on two-lane roads, um, he learned to fly. That way, he was really only gone for about six hours. The time it took, the one-hour flight over to Miami, go to the football game, get back in the plane, and come back over. And most of the time, you know, the doctors in the emergency room could stabilize the patient, and then he'd come in and deal with the facial trauma after that. So, you know, it was, it, nobody died because he was at a football game. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. There you go. So that was his impetus for learning to fly. It became a passion. He had always had an interest in aviation. In fact, his first airplane ride was in 1939 in a DC-3 from Baltimore to Philadelphia. And he said they couldn't land in Philadelphia and they had to turn around and go back to Baltimore and, the, and he and his mom had to take a bus. Wow. That's a, that's a, that's a, real, um, a real trial after being up in the air. <laughs> Anyhow... Um, he learned to fly. I can remember flying with him at a very, very young age. And so the first time I flew that I was conscious of flying on an airliner, I was probably about five years old. And my father tells me that the famous quote was, here I was sitting on this National Airlines 727 in the center seat looking around, and I said to him, this isn't flying. This is like sitting in your living room. <laughs> Well, and that's the thing, it's all about, we talk a lot on our show about getting kids and hooking them while they're young and building the dream, and we often find in this age of security theatre, it's particularly that way at home, and I'm sure it's the case here, that's becoming more and more difficult. So, I mean, and particularly in your role as uh, being in the magazines and stuff, do you see your role partly as being able to encourage children to build that dream and parents to help them build that dream? Absolutely, absolutely. Quite frankly, um, two out of four kids in my family actually became pilots. All of us took a little flying lessons, even the two that, that point blank looked my dad in the eye and said, I really don't want to do this. And that's okay too. Yeah. That's okay too. You're going to put it out there. Not everybody's going to go for it. And you need to understand that. Occupational hazard it is, yeah, right? Exactly. That's okay. You need, you need to understand that as a parent. You need to understand that as an educator, um, as an interested adult who might be working with uh, aviation explorers, Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts. I know you have girl guides mm -hmm. in your country. Um, but there are a lot of different vocations and avocations in, in aviation. For instance, I have a daughter who is studying French literature. She's got no real interest.
interest in learning to fly. I have another daughter who's studying industrial engineering who's got quite a bit of glider time, quite a bit of, um, of stick time in our kit box, about 25 hours, and really could have soloed not quite there yet, had to go back to school. But the point is she's got a passion for it, and she's working as an intern at Lockheed Martin now. Wow. And so what is it fostered in her? A real love of the medium. And mm. she's working in aviation. She's working for a very big aviation company. She's an engineer. She's working on projects that fly. Yeah. So was I successful? Well, she's not a pilot. Doesn't but matter. It doesn't matter. And the other one really honestly appreciates general aviation for getting her from point A to point B, even if she doesn't have any interest whatsoever in flying the airplane. Now, of course, in your other role, you um, do women Aviation for Women magazine. Is that what it's called? It's called Aviation for Women magazine, and Aviation for Women magazine is really, I like to call it a mirror for the members. Right. I want them to see themselves in this magazine. And so I work very, very hard. I, I don't restrict it only to our membership. That's about 8,000 people worldwide, and 11% of those are men because we, are, we do not discriminate. You don't want people to discriminate against you. If you're all about diversity, then you need to be a diverse organization. And I understand the name is Women in Aviation International. I understand the mission is to increase diversity hmm. in aviation and certainly to increase the number of women who are involved in aviation and aerospace. But point blank, we don't discriminate. If you support our mission, you can be a member. Yeah, yeah. And you can help us. And a full member. That's it's a refreshing attitude. I'm really always here. A member or an associate member or anything. Full member, voting rights, all the same benefits. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's clear that you have to treat people the way you want them to treat you. Now, Women for Aviation International, you do some amazing things. I was talking with uh, Rob Mark this morning, who was telling me all about the scholarship programs, the huge amount of oh, money yeah. that you guys We give away $700,000 a year of scholarships, and we have our own endowment, which also provides almost $20,000 a year of scholarships um, right out of Women in Aviation's endowment. And considering we're only 23 years old, that we've built up almost to a million dollars that we can afford to give that much money away each year yeah. is pretty amazing. That other scholarships, we go out to industry. We go out to our corporate partners and we ask them, what can you give? What are you interested in seeing happen in your name? Uh, we have members who have won scholarships who now get together and create scholarships each year. So there's a big pay it forward factor. We have a lot of members who, who um, garnered their first jobs, their second job, their best job from coming to Women in Aviation and networking. So that's really exciting. But we also have a core group of just enthusiasts, teachers, doctors, lawyers, you know, who might or might not be pilots. But the point is they love aviation, they care about the future of it, and they want to participate. They want to help. It's often said that, um, and it's often shown in statistics, that women are very underrepresented in the aviation industry in general. Are you seeing a trend through your work away from that? Are there more women now coming in, as not only as a result of your own work, but you know, from other organisations that are similar? Hey, I like to think that it's all ours, but uh, yeah, let's face of it. Of course it's all your own. What was I thinking? <laughs> there, no, the trend has been, over the 23 years that we've been around, that there's been an almost 500% increase in women 
participating in commercial aviation as a vocation, okay? Most of them are junior pilots at airlines in different places all over the world, but they are there, and it's a tremendous increase. The problem is the numbers are still pretty small. The numbers are still... So when I say we went from 2% of airline transport pilots being women to 3.5% of airline pilots being women, we're still only talking about the difference between three and 8,000 people. And why worldwide. is that? And why, why do Because it takes a long time to get to be an airline transport pilot. And women... Well... Well, it's the same for men, though. So yeah, why, exactly. why do Why do women... Why do young women find that more off-putting, do you think? Well, I don't think they find it off-putting. I think they don't see themselves there. Right. If you don't see yourself in another person that looks like you in that uniform walking down the, the aisle and going up into the cockpit, what makes you imagine you could do it? Yeah, yeah. And, it's, it's, it, and, and the more you see them, the more visible they are, then the more likely you are to say, hey, I could do that. And I've got to tell you, that's the whole reason why we go with the T-shirt and the and the picture, which it's our fourth year here at EAA Air Venture, doing just a roundup at, in the center of the square at 10.30 on the Friday morning. And the idea is, let's all make ourselves visible for one day. Yeah. See ourselves in one spot and go, hey, it's more people than you think. And then all day as you walk around here, You'll see people in this in this mint green T-shirt, and you'll go, "Huh, didn't realize, didn't realize, mm. didn't realize," right? And that's that's what it's all about. If you don't notice, if you don't notice what's under the cap when somebody's got themselves, you know, stacked up in the uniform, is all basically the same. Um, particularly in commercial aviation, women have tended to keep a very low profile because it's easier when there's not a lot of you, when you don't see another female maybe in your job for a week or two at a time, you tend to want to just go with the flow and be no different than the guy sitting next to you, right? Right. Okay. Um, and what do they try to make? In air- airlines try to make airline pilots all about the same, don't they? Mm. They don't foster creativity. They don't foster difference. You know, okay, Southwest Airlines will let you wear a different tie. <laughs> but, but you get my point. Mm. They, they're looking for um, uniformity, they're looking for a consistent product that they can mix and match in any cockpit of any of their aircraft, correct? And do most women find, when they, if they make it right up to you, they go on the flight deck of, say, 737, do they find it harder to be accepted by men, or do you think Not once anymore. they get there, there's just that acknowledgement that you've made the grade like everybody else? If you do your job and do it well, no one's going to care anymore. The dinosaurs are essentially gone at this point. The, the, there will be the occasional situation, possibly in a training situation with somebody who's old school, uh, very rarely in, in an airline or cockpit in the United States, um, much less rarely than it used to be even in Europe. Uh, I believe that every now and again in Asia, in India, there can still be some issues. Mm, that um, would be a very big cultural yeah, thing there. Yeah. Very much a cultural thing. In Africa, it's, it's changing very, very rapidly. Um, if you fly around in the bush in Af- Africa today, there's a very high likely, likelihood that your pilot, be it a helicopter pilot or, or um, a caravan, may be a female. Mm. Uh, particularly if you're working for any of the aid um, foundations over there. 
a lot of the air surf pilots are women. Yeah. Um, they'll take those tough jobs and they do them quite well. And why do they take them? Because they're available and they pay well. There you go. And nobody's asking, <laughs> you know, what your gender is. And so if 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 she can fly a dash eight in and out of a combat zone, you know, in Somalia, you know, in a dust storm onto a dirt runway in the middle of nowhere that's lined by rocks to, you know, find it in the desert. I, I can guarantee you she's probably going to be just fine on that airliner cockpit. Yeah, landing here at Oshkosh would yeah. be a snap. Landing here at Oshkosh ought to be a snap. Yeah, yeah exactly. So, so my point is, it, there's I'm I'm watching a, almost a critical mass kind of thing happening, and we're starting to see growth in China. We're starting to see interest in other parts of the world um, where we haven't even heard about women getting to ride on the front of the bus. Yeah, yeah. much less. It's yeah. almost strange to think that those sort of conditions still exist, isn't it, in oh, this day and age? Oh, they very much do. I, I recently was invited to go to an international transport forum in Leipzig, Germany, and the women's issues there were so different from what I think of as women's issues. Mm. Okay, I'm thinking aviation. I'm there to interview um, the directress of secure air transportation security in Spain. You know, <laughs> I'm looking for these high-level women who are in government positions where they can have change because I want people to see that there are women in the other FAAs of the world. For instance, I was in China and the CAAC is full of women. Um, In fact, some of the people making decisions about what's going to happen for general aviation in China are women. In fact, here on the grounds, some of the um, new Chinese owners of some of these companies... (laughs) Women. I interviewed Mad- Madame Wang, who was uh, the chairwoman uh, with her husband, but wow. very much so. She is the all the management, marketing, PR, um, for Superior Air Parts. And, and Mr. Cheng, he is doing the logistics. And then we have Tim Archer, who's the president, and is, they're a worldwide company. So that's Brantley Helicopters and, and, and Superior Air Parts. It's amazing. So you need to start thinking, where are the women? Well, the women are in some pretty high-placed positions. Well, in fact, this morning we were at your breakfast up there at, uh, up there at the front of the, uh, the air show here, and uh, we noticed that the director of the, uh, I think it's the NTSB, is it? That is correct, Deborah Hurstman. Yeah, in fact, we the tried to go over for an interview, De- but we Deborah missed Deborah Hurstman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to schedule those in advance. Yeah, yeah, they, we They figured, don't happen yeah. on the fly. Yeah, yeah. Now, of course, we're from Australia and we try to cover our part of the world. Where is your organisation represented there? Well, we have about 25 members in all of Australia, which makes well, we me need to think fix that, that, that we? that's... We're, we're severely in, underrepresented in Australia. And one of, the thing, one of the reasons why is they have a very nice Australian Women Pilots Association. We don't want to step on anybody's toes. Um, one of the things we like to see is organic growth income countries and so the Australian Women Pilots Association is a great organization for women pilots but in Australia there's a lot more than women pilots there are women air traffic controllers there are women technicians uh, engineers uh, there are women aircraft designers uh, there are women working at the airports and they might find it really interesting to have a group where they could all get together and cross-pollinate ideas, yep. which is what we do. 
In fact, um, the uh, the chief pilot, the head pilot of our first C-17 squadron in our, in our Air Force is a woman. There you go. Yeah, so, or at least was at the time when they came in. It sounds like it's time for me to go back to Australia, where you I haven't been since there. about 1998. No, and I, no. I've only been to Melbourne, so well, I need to see the coming rest from of Melbourne the myself. No, you, you've seen the best part. I can tell. <laughs> it's a lovely, lovely place, and um, we are we are overdue. We're just beginning to um, see ourselves on that side of the globe more. Yeah. Travel is always a challenge when you work for a nonprofit. So let's work together and see what we can figure out to get us over Well, there. we'd be happy to help promote anything that you want to do down there because we think it's very, very important. Yeah. yeah. Understand that the first time we show up, it's usually a delegation of uh, two or three people, and we want to meet and greet mm-hmm. and find out who's interested. Test the water. That's exactly mm-hmm. right. We would not just run down there and throw up a great you know, conference and say, hey, here we are, and don't you want to be a part of us? Yeah, uh, we're, we're much more interested in seeing who's there and talking about what we're doing and then seeing what happens. Sometimes groups coalesce that are not, that they're not going to be Women in Aviation International, but that doesn't really matter because inside of that group, there will be plenty of people who will want to be members of the international group and then there will be the people who want to be their own the organic local. local group. And it works very, very well that way, too. Um, our, our mission is to educate, inspire, and hope to see um, things change. Yep. Well, educate and inspire, that's a great segue to something else I want to talk to you about and we discussed before the interview. Um, as I'm sure all of our listeners know you're quite a regular on the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast. And one of my favourite episodes is the one where you describe an engine-out situation in a ditching that you had, I believe, in a Cessna 210. That's right. That was about 10 years ago. I had a crankshaft failure after takeoff, climbing out of Key West, Florida, and turned it around. But uh, Didn't quite make really, it. Well, there wasn't any way we were going to make it. We weren't in a position to do so. We were, it was a hot morning, high-density altitude. IFR flight plan, so they don't let you just climb up over the airport to a altitude, you know, a big safe altitude and leave. No, they vector you right out towards the intersection they want you at, and um, so there was no possibility of going back to land. Now I can't, I can't think of the episode number, but if you go to the Uncontrolled Airspace podcast uh, website, folks, and, and search for Amy's name, I'm sure it'll come up there. I highly recommend it. It's a very, very educational piece. And Amy, tell us some of the things that you learned as a result of ditching, because I believe you had children on board the aircraft at that time. Oh yeah, oh yeah, most definitely. Um, one of the things I learned, um, I did it right. We know that because everybody got out, everybody was happy. Um, but the pre-flight briefing is absolutely critical. And you sell yourself and your passengers short if you don't do it well. So take the time to think about all the things, all the things your passengers need, from seatbelt operation, don't just assume they know how to do it, to doors, exits, making sure that you put somebody by the exit who can actually operate the exit in case of an emergency, and, and facilitate and be part of your team to help you. Um, understanding that if it's not attached to you, it's not coming out with you. Yep. In the case of things like uh, personal flotation devices, for instance. Um, everything is uh, replaceable, isn't it? Everything is replaceable. Just don't worry about that. But even, even my first aid kit now is all contained in a fanny pack. Wow. Because it can be strapped on to someone during takeoff and landing. 
and the critical phases of flight where there would be no time to reach for it and put it on. It's interesting because so often, particularly on large commercial aircraft, the safety briefing comes on and nobody watches it. Very few people watch it. Yeah. Um, well, because actually, they become so blasé about that, and I guess even in uh, GA aircraft, that can can be the case. I mean, I could I could name any number of pilots I fly with that never do a safety brief. Well, wasn't it Air New Zealand? Which airline was it that that came up with the flight attendants with the clothing painted on just oh, yes. to get their get the attention? It certainly got my attention. I can tell you. <laughs> <laughs> See, so <laughs> yeah, they're uh, very very switched on thinkers there at Air New Zealand. We're big fans of their work, but yeah. Yeah. But uh, that was an interesting, an interesting way to get people to uh, take notice of it. I noticed we flew over here with Virgin Australia, and they have quite a, a comical way of doing it. Yeah, even uh, even Delta has gone to uh, what were they calling her, De- uh, Delta Lena or something like mm, that, because she's yeah. just this beautiful, you know, Angelina Jolie-looking model, and she's very sassy, and so people look at her and they get the briefing done. Yeah. Um, but you have to think about that when you fly. You might not be a charter company, but you should behave at the standard level just like the airlines or the charter company. Because the reality is 95% of all aircraft accidents are survivable. And of the people who survive, passengers, they say that something in the pre-flight briefing that was said to them, they did it and they survived. It saved their life. I mean, that's that's just research. I'm quoting from yep. research. I didn't make that stuff up. Yep. Well, like I say, and I highly recommend that episode for pilots and non-pilots alike because he really spoke to all of us there about the importance of taking, not taking for granted the things that we all take for granted. And I, I really think that's a great service you've done. You know, not crashing the plane, obviously, but, uh, you know, yeah, well, telling us all about it. It really wasn't a crash. It was actually one of my better landings. Yeah, there you go. It, the, the sad part was it just didn't float. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, it's actually one of the things that we're not taught really properly how to do is, is uh, ditching procedures. I mean, we mostly learn over land. I know in our syllabus back at home it's mentioned, but obviously it's not something you can you really train. You need to understand something about ditching procedures. It varies in the conditions, the type of airplane, and there is almost no good statistical data about it because there are so few ditchings of a specific type of aircraft that... You, you can only say, well, there were three Cessna 210 ditchings, and of those three ditchings, it went this way, it went this way. It went th- you can't, it's really hard to say that airplane's going to do this. Yeah. But I did have one bit of knowledge, which was I had spoken with somebody who ditched a 210 before. And sadly, these guys had an issue with fuel, and they were coming into Fort Myers. They were over the river. They didn't have any place to put it. Um, there was a couple of um, cargo pilots. And I literally talked to them, and they were still in wet clothing. Hmm. And my question was, how long does it float? And they said, not that long. Hmm. You know, you got about 30 to 60 seconds, and then then it's going to sink on you. And I said, okay, good to know. Good to know. And I just, and this was years before. Yeah, yeah. Five years before, maybe six years before, I don't know. But the point was you catalog all that. Yes, they say the brain never forgets anything, really. No, well, not the important stuff. Not the important stuff. And the other thing is know your emergency checklist. Right. You know, I had flown that airplane on and off for 26 years, okay? 26 years is a long time to have a relationship with an airplane. By then, there's certain key items that are red box items. you got to know them. 
you're not going to have time at a thousand feet, or in my case, I was at fifteen hundred feet. Basically, at a minute and a half. Yeah. That's enough time to do a lot of stuff, but it's not enough time to keep the airplane in the air. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah it's absolutely. really time to be looking for a place to land and setting it up. Know your red box items. Know them, absolutely. And did they ever recover the plane? Just had to be. Oh, yeah, they had to recover the airplane. I was full of fuel. I had all kinds of stuff in there. And they didn't really want it sitting off of a very popular public beach. So <laughs> it was true. out of the water within 36 hours. Oh, good. I love the Cessna 210. Never flown one myself, but I've often thought if I won the lottery that it's probably what I'd buy. Yeah, sadly, 36 hours in seawater is just about long enough. Yeah, to I don't think I'd want to buy that one, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And you fly a Kit Fox these days. You know. I do fly a Kit Fox in an RV-10 these days and the occasional Cessna 150 or miscellaneous other airplane for flight reviews, things like that, that absolutely. I'm happy to uh, help out some of my neighbors with. Absolutely. Yeah. Amy, it's an absolute privilege to meet and speak with you. I appreciate you spending some time. I know you're very, very busy. But uh, just before we go, we should uh, you should tell everybody where they can find you online. Oh, I'm very easy to find online. <laughs> <laughs> you can hear me once a month or so on the UCAP uh, uncontrolledairspace.com uh, podcast. You can find my work at www.afwdigital.org and, of course, through wai.org, which is Women in Aviation International. If you Google Amy Laboda, all kinds of other interesting stuff comes I'm up, sure. too. <laughs> Happens to the best of us. <laughs> Absolutely. Amy Lebeda, thanks very much for talking with us. Oh, you're very welcome. Have a great air venture. Thank you. Okay, we're standing here at Oshkosh with Boyd Delwo. And Boyd, uh, you're a listener to the show, which we appreciate, but uh, you do a really cool job here. You're working for just a you know a little spaceship company. I do. I work for the spaceship company. I think I've got the best job in the world. I reckon you might have, mate. I'm a structural design engineer and uh, been working over there, over at TSC, the spaceship company, yep. for uh, nine months now. Now, you're a structural, I know you can't talk too much in specifics about the aircraft, but, you know, generally, what is your job? Is it a quality control, overseeing design? I'm overseeing the design of right. the, the production vehicles that will go up into space. Right. Uh, so it's it's a very challenging, technically challenging job. Yep. We want to make the vehicles as safe as we can. Yep. Uh, so that, that's what I do in a nutshell, I guess. So. And you've seen a lot of lot of interest here. I mean, surely it's getting a lot of traffic through your, your little uh, site there. Yeah, so we're, we're trying to hire people and... Uh, it, it's, it's awesome. The vehicles sell themselves. It's yeah. an awesome program to work on. I get to go up in the spaceship every day and, and do work, so it's not every day I, I come home and tell my wife I was working in the spaceship again, and not everyone can do that. So. Yeah, that sounds like something out of uh, Star Trek or something, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, well, it is the Enterprise. Yeah, well, there it you is, go. Yes. Yeah. There you go. Yeah. There you go. Even Enterprise. So, so now you say they're looking, you're looking to, looking to hire people. What sort of people, and are they looking worldwide, obviously? They must we're, be if they're taking on Aussies. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're looking worldwide. Uh, our, our vice president is actually an Aussie from Perth. Oh, there you go. Uh, but uh, willing worldwide for engineers, technicians, composite fabricators, metal workers, uh, the whole lot. It's, wow. We need to add probably 100 people in the next 15 months, so we're growing really, really quickly. That's very quick. Now, you're based out in the Mojave Desert, is that right? Yeah, we're based in the Mojave Desert, right next door to Scale Composites, which... I'm sure your listeners know that scale composites, uh, they sell themselves as well. Yeah, yeah. scale composites if we're talking Australian. Sorry, sorry, I've been, I've been over here too <laughs> yeah, long. Yeah, you've been over here too long, mate. I see you had a California driver's license here before, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah. cool. Good to do that. So tell us a bit about that facility, it must be huge. So we have two facilities, we have a 30,000 foot facility where we do our composite manufacture, our component manufacture, sorry, and we have a, we're about to open a 70,000 foot final assembly hangar, so we'll fit two white knights and five space, well, three spaceships, sorry. 
it's it's huge. It's awesome. It's cool. It's, it's rose up out of the desert heat in, in Mojave. Yeah. Yeah, obviously, there's been no sort of uh, you know confirmed date for when you're going to uh, you know go live with the program, but uh, we hear that the engineers and the uh, test pilots are very happy with the vehicle so far. Yeah, the, it's as an engineer, it's great to hear when the pilots come back and say that they love the vehicle and how it flies. Yeah, yeah. Uh, our test pilots are, are really brave guys, and they love it. Yeah. So cannot complain. Now, let's just quickly talk about how you found yourself to be working in such a you know in a foreign land in such an awesomely cool program. Well, I uh, went to university at RMIT in Melbourne. Uh, worked at Boeing Aerostructures Australia for a couple of years, also at GK in Aerospace in Port Melbourne. And uh, when I saw her online that this job had come up, it was, it was too good to refuse. So yeah, yeah, yeah. convinced my wife that she wanted, she had to move to the desert in California, <laughs> and that was it. How's yeah. the support structure been for her? It's been good. They're they're really good with getting people to move out to Mojave. So they're. We're backed by Virgin and, and they're very good with employee relationships and keeping families happy. So we want the best people in the world to come and work for us. So to do that, they've got to look after the families yeah. as well. Yeah, That's really cool, board, and we uh, we appreciate that you listen to the show and it's uh, we hope you can uh, spread the PCDU word around there at uh, Scale Composites. Composites. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, thanks, guys. It's, I mean, I like listening to your, your podcast. It's awesome. It's, it's great cool. to listen to our work and hear some Aussie accents. Yeah, yeah I appreciate <laughs> that, mate. No thanks, worries. Mate. And, uh, well, you know, and uh, you, you turn off the recorder, haven't yeah, good. Okay, so now about stuffing the ballot to make sure we get the first media flights. I really appreciate that, man. Yeah, that's, you. You're awesome, mate. You're awesome. Yeah, we, 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 you know, the, Nikolai, Nikolai Soul is already on its way to you. you know, it's all, yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Boyd, uh, thanks very much for speaking to us, mate. Really appreciate it. No problem. Thanks, guys. Right. Enjoy the show. Thanks. This is David here at ConocoPhillips Plaza. I'm here with Steve Sorensen, and we're in the Burt Rutan Heritage Area. And Steve has a... Burt Rutan Defiant. Um, tell me a little bit about the airplane, Steve. Well, it's a uh, twin-engine airplane, four-place. It has um, 260 horsepower Lycoming engines, and uh, it has uh, extremely long range, and uh, it's an absolute delight to fly. It was built by me from plans over the period of 21 years. And I understand that this is a rare Rutan aircraft. Do you, do you know how many Defiants were actually built? Well, we know of maybe 25. Uh, there was only about 150 copies of the plans sold. And most of the airplanes that have flown have taken an average of 15 to 20 years to build. They're, they're a very, very large project. Tell me a little bit about Project Puffin. Oh, well, Project Puffin is actually the uh, the uh, sponsor of the the hat I'm wearing. It has nothing to do with the airplane, but the but the name of the airplane is the Twin Puffin, uh, which comes from the pu- the Puffin is a, a small Arctic bird that flies very fast and is very cute, and I kind of liked it, so I adopted the name. And uh, since it's a twin engine, I call it the Twin Puffin. And this hat's the only uh, hat I ever saw that had a picture of a puffin on it. So. <laughs> so. But tell me about the little trip that you made in it. Well, uh, we, uh, my brother and I decided we wanted to take this uh, plane on a long trip. So we, we flew from the United States across the Pacific, from Hawaii to Tarawa to Micronesia and on to Australia and uh, spent some time in Australia and then we flew the plane home via a different route and finished the entire trip uh, last uh, uh, May. And, 
is about a 25,000 mile trip altogether. About 17,000 miles of that over water. And uh, it was our, uh, it was our adventure trip. And um, it's packed with electronics. Did you do anything special for the flight? Uh, the only thing we added was um, a high-frequency radio, which is required to give position reports over the open ocean. And uh, we installed a radio and, a, and an antenna uh, to make that work. Otherwise, uh, the instrumentation is very standard. It's not. Uh, there's nothing exotic about it. Uh, it's not even... Um, top-of-the-line stuff, it's it's uh, pretty basic. Did you um, add any ta- fuel tanks or anything else to modify it? Yeah, we uh, we added a fuel tank to the rear seat uh, that holds an extra 120 gallons of fuel and uh, it gave us a range of uh, about 2,700 nautical miles and uh, so we had plenty of gas to go. The longest leg we did was about 2,200 nautical miles. Now, as in typical Rutan style, this aircraft is a little different with canards, but unlike a lot of Rutan aircraft, you have an additional vertical surface. Want to tell me what that is under the nose? Well, that's the rudder. Uh, it's sometimes called the rhino rudder, like a, the horn of a rhinoceros, except, of course, it's sticking down. Um, Bird did that because he was kind of obsessed with simplicity at the time, and that makes it incredibly simple installation because it, it it's right there where the rudder pedals are and it's very effective it provides beautiful yaw uh, and it's and it's so simple and nobody else has got one it's definitely unique well this aircraft is beautiful um, how does she fly uh, beautifully it's and, um, it, it flies like a rutan design right it, it does it actually uh, it's, it's incredibly stable it's it's larger than most of the rutan designs so it uh, once you've got it uh, in the air and trimmed up it's just solid as a rock and it goes on forever sometimes you can fly it for two or three hours at a time without even touching the, the controls it's so well balanced very cool and um was this your first airplane build no i built a uh, very easy prior to this uh, and I still have it, although I stopped flying in the last five years. Well, when, when, when you have the biggest, it's kind of very easy. Or a little, yeah. When you can take something across the Pacific, a very easy just doesn't seem the same. Yeah, I, I don't think most people actually need two flying airplanes at once. I really appreciate you taking the time, and thank you for being on Plane Crazy Down Under. Um, it's a beautiful airplane in a really cool rutan design. Thank you. Thank you for coming by. Hi, this is Mike Miley from MyTransponder.com. We're making aviation more social, but you're listening to the blokes at Plane Crazy Down Under. Hey, what's your name? Andrew Mason. And where are you from? I'm from Melbourne, Australia. And what brings you here? Uh, I am in the Royal Australian Air Force, and I'm doing a three-year exchange uh, about seven hours south of here at Scott Air Force Base in Illinois. Cool. Uh, And uh, a friend of mine at work said, uh, ever heard of Boscosh? And I said, yes, I have. And... uh, 
let's go and have a look. He said, righto. So this is your first one as well? First one as well, yeah. Cool. And uh, what are you flying? Uh, I'm not actually a pilot. I'm a logistics officer, but okay. uh, still have a keen interest. I'm uh, also a uh, helicopter pilot on the outside. Cool. So Awesome. Yeah. What kind of choppers are you flying? Robinsons. got five hours in a Schweitzer and didn't like it, so I went back to Robinsons. So. Yeah, yeah, that's cool. And what are you enjoying of the show so far? We just saw the Red Bull helicopter um, yeah. do some things that they're just not supposed to do. And, uh, I think that's Chuck Aaron, impressive. isn't it? Yeah. yeah. He's pretty mad, isn't yeah. he? Yeah. He's <laughs> outstanding. Yeah. But other than that, the... Uh, Whoever the fellow was yesterday that started his uh, performance in the pits on a knife edge about two feet off the runway, yeah. um, that, I haven't seen anything like that before. So yeah, brilliant. Sort of impressive stuff, isn't it? Yeah. So you'll be coming back if you can. Uh, if I can, yeah. Well, yeah. I'm here for another two years, so. Oh, okay. Could make it a regular thing. Well, yeah, that'll make it pretty easy for you. Yeah. And so, whereabouts have you been based in Melbourne, in, in Australia, with a wrap? Oh, um, you name it: uh, Melbourne, Canberra, back to Melbourne, Perth, Brisbane, Sydney. Uh, and short trips everywhere else. So, yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. Well, thanks for coming on the show. No worries. Want something different to talk about on Monday? Get yourself a Jet Ride gift pack and tear through the skies at 900 Ks with Australia's ultimate jet fighter experience. Be top gun for the day. Go to jetride.com.au slash PCDU or in Australia call 1300 554 876. Whether you're buying or selling a light single-engine aircraft or a corporate jet, do it faster and easier with aviationadvertiser.com.au. Aviationadvertiser.com.au is Australia's largest aviation marketplace. As the country's largest source of aircraft classifieds, you'll find hundreds of new and used aircraft of all types online 24 hours a day. With ads from just $39 and the convenience of buying and selling online, it's easy and affordable. Connect with Australia's largest buy and sell aviation community at aviation. Looking for a different way to promote your business? Our podcasts are a great way to reach listeners across the Asia-Pacific region and a growing audience around the world. We can produce your ad in-house in a variety of styles or use your own pre-produced commercial. With an expanding online aviation community of professionals and enthusiasts, our podcasts can get your name out there. For more information on our advertising packages, go to www.plainecrazydownunder.com and click on the Advertising With Us link. It's what's down under that counts. Find this and other great shows at the Aviation Media Network. The Voices in Your Head.com. So, your friends from Australia have called you up or Skyped you and said they want to go to Wisconsin to Oshkosh Air Venture 2011. You think, great idea. When you get here, you find out you're in a 10-man tent that really only sleeps four without their stuff. The showers are approximately a quarter of a mile away. The internet access is spotty and just when you need it to work the most, will shut off. And you're survived and you're surrounded by thousands of thousands of thousands of airplanes and campers. Welcome to AirVenture 2011. This is David Vanderhoof, and this is the view from the tent. So, I'm sitting in the tent all by myself. Grant has run off to Bonanzas to Oshkosh. Mike, our trusty cohort, and Gaffer has moved on to with Steve to recover our laundry. 
from a service three blocks away that we paid yesterday and will promptly deliver them back to us clean. Why? Well, we've had rain. While it's not been slash kosh, it has been muddy and slippery and grassy. Note the ambient noise. Large trucks going by. Campers flapping in the breeze. It's the whole Oshkosh experience. But, to be honest, I wouldn't change it for the world. Thousands of airplanes and here at Firebase My Transponder, a very large RV equipped with cameras and radio equipment and support and, more importantly, coffee for first thing in the morning. Today being Thursday, it's been a hectic week. Exhaustion is finally starting to set in. Two episodes out the door, one more left to do. We haven't done a seen a show yet, but that could be continued. But overall, not a bad week. Got to spend time with Grant and Steve, and met lots and lots of other people who I wouldn't have gotten to met had they not gone up and over and across the pond. So thanks, guys. Again, this was the North American correspondent. Hopefully, Anthony, you thought I did a good job with this. And this is David Vanderhoof, and this has been The View from the Tent. Okay, that's done. Now i got to go find some coffee. Oh, look, a B-29. I need coffee. All right, well, one of the uh, fun things that uh, a couple of us have had the opportunity to do is to do a little bit of flying while we're here at, uh, at AirVenture. And, Baz, uh, you've been up uh, doing a flight test. Oh, absolutely. I uh, found a uh, beautiful uh, light sport aircraft called the Remos GX and uh, started talking to uh, the people in the booth, and uh, they just said, well, why don't we get you on a media flight? So that's exactly uh, what we did, and uh, I, I made my way down to the uh, Orion FBL where they're doing all their, their demo flights from, and... Uh, Ryan Hernandez, who's uh, probably one of the greatest demo pilots in the, the fact that he just says, I'm just going to let you fly the airplane, just let me know if you want or need me to take over. And um, so that's what happened. You know, I, I, went, I went to fly the aircraft and uh, um, first uh, had a little chat to uh, Lou, one of the, the sales managers, uh, talk about the aircraft, and uh, then we'll go into uh, flying the aircraft. It's uh, uh, probably about a 40-minute flight I did. Uh, I condensed the audio down to about three and a half minutes, uh, so you get a bit of a feel of what it's like to uh, fly an aircraft in and out of Washcosh, which is an experience in itself. All right, well, let's have a listen. Standing here in the uh, Remos stand, with the, looking at the Remos GX, and I'm going to have a chat to uh, Lou Mancuso. He's the dealer for the Northeastern US, based out of New York. Uh, good day, Lou. Good day. All right, I've uh, I've actually had a fly already in this this aircraft uh, with your demo pilot Ryan, and uh, I was quite impressed. And uh, looking to uh, get a bit more information about the uh, the aircraft. It's a high wing. Is it composite? It's all carbon fiber, which makes it very light, very strong, which makes it climb better than other heavier planes. Because how much uh, usable weight would you have on this aircraft in a typical configuration? Uh, 620 pounds is typical. So that's uh, that's a fair amount of fuel plus a fair amount of people uh, and, and bags. So looking at high wing, uh, Composite's got a uh, carbon fiber. It's got a uh, Rotex in it. Is it a 912 ULS? Correct. So 100 horsepower. Uh, we got uh, two sticks. 
And uh, can you tell me a bit about the avionics that's uh, included in uh, in some of the versions you've got of this? The one we're looking at has dual Skyview synthetic vision dynons, state-of-the-art, the latest technology, and an oversized 696 in the center panel with a SL30 Garmin Navcom, which makes the HSI on the dynon have VOR glide slope and a magnometer so you never have to reset the DG. Fantastic. So it's really a uh, IFR equipped. Could you could you fly this aircraft in IFR if you're licensed to do so? No, but I will uh, work the center and get flight following just as if I was IFR, but I cannot legally penetrate the clouds. I heard a lot of good things about this uh, this aircraft. How many are flying in the world today? About 400. And that's all over the world, mainly Europe and mainly U.S.? All over the world, with uh, probably 300 in the U.S. And any chance of, uh, or any plans to bring these aircraft to Australia? I'm sure they do. They're looking forward to a dealer stepping up to represent that area. And the, the different configurations you can get this aircraft in, uh, what is the base configuration? What kind of avionics would you get and, and what kind of pricing would we be looking at? Well, the basic one would be with a Diamond uh, Dynon D180, which has the engine instruments and the EFIS built into one unit, and those are available uh, demos for about 109,000. And the top of the line plane, with every single option there is, gets up to about 190,000. Three features we didn't talk about that should be mentioned that okay. makes the plane unique. The first one, it has a one-piece solid steel landing gear, which is the strongest of all the LSAs and can withstand the abuse of student training. The second feature, it has adjustable uh, lever to block off the oil cooler so when it's cold out, you can keep your engine warm from inside the cabin. Most of the other planes use uh, metal tape to block off the oil cooler, and it cannot be done in flight. And its most unique benefit is the wings fold, and it can be trailed. You can take it home, you can take it to a party, you can do whatever with the folding wings, and that makes the plane unique. And indeed, I'm, uh, I'm looking at one now in a container standing next to your, uh, or a trailer standing next to your uh, your stand, and it's got its wings folded back. And is that easy to fold back? How long would it take, and how many people would you need to do it? Two men, 15 minutes. Okay, great. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, I've had a great fly in it, and uh, I'm sure you'll have a lot of success with it when, uh, when this comes to Australia. Okay, so you got you have a uh, EMS system over here. Now you can make that bigger by going to screen, and then you just go into layout. Yep. And so you can make that, that a bigger screen, or you can just put it by itself by hitting well by hitting PFD power flight split. So that takes that off, puts that one on there. Then you can take all engine off, put that on there. So you can put it however you want. I like this setup the most. Yep. Because it gives you a bigger primary flight display, and then you got the, all the stuff you need right here. I just want to remind you of your departures, uh, 1,300 feet to your uh, clear of the uh, Delta airspace, uh, heading anywhere from a 270 up to 360. And once you're clear, you could uh, proceed on course. Need you to be looking for arrivals that might be coming inbound over the railroad tracks for the right now one. Boy, is this fun or what? Yeah. Yeah. Great job, Ed. Thanks, Rhodes. Yeah, citation. Sorry for all that. There, we're uh, we'll get those guys out of your way and uh, we'll get you going here. No problem. In uh, six two four three. Cherokee, keep going. Cherokee, keep on going down the runway. Make the left turn. We won't let that citation go behind you there. Yeah, if you need to go down to the end, uh, make a left turn on Echo. That'll work. 
Uh, Remo 3 Golf X ray, runway 27 position, and I'll caution white terms from the citation. That's it. Yep. 3 is Kilo Golf, right side, runway 27 position, and I'll. We're going left side. Who's first? Yeah, Remo 3 Golf X ray, runway 27, cliff takeoff. So 4800, we're uh, indicating about uh, 111 knots. That's about expected. G, let's say. Steep turn. Very easy. Altitude. I can steepen it up a little bit now. Cut up there a little bit. And roll out. There we are. Very nice. Very nice. Alright, should we do a stall? Okay. What it feels like? Yeah. Alrighty. Now we're coming back. Steep altitude. Sounds like you had a great flight there, Baz, and you've also taken some video. The uh, the guys from My Transponder were very kind to uh, let you take one of their GoPro cameras, which you fitted inside the cockpit. And uh, I've been lucky enough to have a listen, or actually, you know, I've been lucky enough to have a look at some of that video. And uh, looks like you just about nailed the green dot when you landed. Yeah, it was it was challenging. I mean, it's a it's a great environment to uh, to fly in. Uh, as you as you could hear in the audio there, uh, the controllers were very busy, and uh, we were we were told to join downwind. Uh, uh, behind a V-tail Bonanza, and then they made the Bonanza do a, uh, a extend their downwind and made us turn uh, base around the numbers. And uh, he hadn't given us a, a dot by then, so I was actually aiming for a dot earlier than he wanted me to. So in short, finally told me go to the green dot instead. So here I was in this new aircraft I hadn't flown before, uh, just adding some power to uh, to extend the the, the glide and. Uh, yeah, I got, got pretty close to the green dot, so I'm, I'm happy about that. And as the, as the video shows, you know, it was actually me doing it. So that was a great experience. Actually, just as an aside for people, uh, for our listeners who are not familiar, um, the way they do it here is they've got a number of very large coloured dots on the runways. It's very unique, so they can have multiple approaches onto the runway here at, Whit- at Whitman. Uh, and they, the controllers will just tell you to aim for the green dot, the yellow dot, or there's one other colour I can't think there's, there's a white dot as well, or they tell you to go to the numbers. And you could hear that where... Uh, he was, uh, he was telling me to go to the green dot and the Bonanza that was now first in front of me but now behind me uh, to land on the numbers. Right, right. Just a really unique place. Well, it's, uh, Bez, it's, uh, I'm glad one of us at least got a test flight. David and I have been up in the mass choppers, which you can hear uh, 
I could call, keep calling in the mass choppers. They're actually uh, Bell 47s. David and I went for a ride in those yesterday. I've also got some video of that. So, uh, boy, it's been a great week of flying. OK, we're sitting here on the last, or our last full day here at, uh, at uh, AirVenture 2011 and uh, we're looking around for uh, other interest groups. Americans are, are very, very good, we found it, at uh, advocacy groups and uh, prominently amongst those uh, women's advocacy groups. So we're here in the tent now of a group called the 99s and I'm here with Shelley Ventura. And uh, thanks for joining us, Shelley, and tell us a bit about the 99s. Well, the 99s is an all-women organization, uh, international organization of women pilots, and our main purpose is to uh, promote aviation for women, to encourage uh, women to take up flight. We provide scholarship opportunities. Uh, we operate two museums to preserve the history of women in, in aviation. And um, it's also an opportunity for women to network and, and share the the experience of being a female pilot. Right. And how many members would you have, would you think? Uh, right now, I think we're hovering right about 5,000 members. 5,000, yeah. And yeah. lots of chapters all around the U.S. and around the world? Well, we have eight sections. There's chapters, then sections, and they go up to international. And we have eight sections in the uh, United States, I think two in Canada. We have an Australian section. Cool. Um, I'll have to look that up when I get home. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Several uh, pilots have been there. And, um, you know, we're in probably 20 different countries. Okay, now we were at the uh, Women for uh, women in Aviation breakfast yesterday. Sure. They cover all facets of aviation, including Correct. pilots, but you guys are just, just for pilots. Absolutely pilots, um, but it's balloon pilots, glider pilots. It's, it's all forms, but it is strictly geared towards pilots. Cool. So uh, what do you do to get out in advocacy? Do you get out and get out into the schools, get out to Girl Scout trips, that sort of thing? We do air bear presentations. We do Girl Scouts, um, career days. Uh, we go to all kinds of different venues. Um, here at Air Venture, obviously, yeah. something fun. Just about anywhere we can target. I'll stop somebody in the street, tell them about it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And so I, uh, I noticed, and they do a lot of um, award sort of schemes, and I noticed you were telling me just before we started you've got a particular medallion around your neck. Tell us about that. Absolutely. I have the Amelia Earhart Scholarship Fund Medallion. It's for... Um, we present probably 20 of these a year, and they are intended to actually pay entirely for a rating, um, for instrument rating, for commercial... We offer some future women pilot awards or new pilot awards now that pay for ground school, for books, for the flight training, for rental of the aircraft. And it's a great way to get women into more advanced schools in aviation. Yeah. My, my scholarship was in 2003, and I got my commercial license. And um, I'm going from there. Good for you. Few years, yeah. I, I hope to start working on the CFI. Cool, absolutely. Now, obviously, um, now you're talking, we talk a lot about getting young people involved, but obviously your group would also advocate to all women of all ages. Absolutely, yes. The scholarships are certainly not limited to, to college students or anything like that, but we do target them as well. Yeah, yeah. Now, I was talking with Amy Labote yesterday, and I asked her this question, and I'll ask you too. It seems that women all around the world seem to be very much underrepresented in the aviation industry. So obviously your group is aimed at addressing that, but why do you think that that is the case? 
Well, there's still kind of a stigma where women aren't necessarily encouraged to get into careers that involve math, sciences, and um, technical type fields like this. It's changing. I think it's improving and more women you know, don't see themselves as limited to any particular career choice. Yeah. But it's it's just slow going. Yeah. It's, um, it's steadily improving, would you say? I would say it's held way too constant for way too long. Yeah. And it needs to start improving. Women need to start, <laughs> excuse the expression, but they need to start spreading their wings. Yeah, absolutely. No pun intended. Well, no, maybe I pun intended. <laughs> <laughs> So, uh, Shelley, tell us where we can find uh, the website and your online presence. It is www.99s, all spelled out, one word, no hyphen, dot um, There's all kinds of information. There's information about joining the organization, what we do, the, the different um, you know, air race type things that we help sponsor that involved with the Museum of Women Pilots in Oklahoma City, the Amelia Earhart Birthplace Museum in Atchison, Kansas. Those are our historic uh, venues, but also lots of good information about the scholarship program. Oh, we also have the PPL. I almost forgot to mention that. It's the Professional Pilot Leadership Initiative, where it's a networking um, opportunity for, for women that want to take the professional it's a whole mentorship, formalized mental mentorship program where they get mentored for a period of time and then they in turn become mentors yeah. the next wave. And it's, it's an excellent program. Paying it forward, I think you call it in this yep. country. Yeah, yep. absolutely. absolutely. Well, that's fascinating. You guys do great work and it's great to see. You know, some of the men ought to uh, be qu- uh, even half as organized yes. as the women are in the world. Maybe it would be a better place. Eh? <laughs> well, we're, our... our current byline is inspiring women pilots since 1929 and that's really what we're about that's a great slogan Shelly Ventura thanks very much for spending some time with us thank you thank you Hi, I'm Stephen Forrest from the Airspeed Podcast, and when I'm not producing a show, I'm listening to guys who are inverted all the time, playing crazy down under. And folks, we're back. Um, this is David. We're a little drier, um, but evidently these storms are going to be coming in later on this afternoon. So we, we got. But I'm sitting inside a quiet room with um, James Weeby. Um, and James works with an aspect of aviation we haven't really done much about. Um, a little on the light side, as in ultralight. Um, James, thanks for being on the podcast. I am very pleased to be with you today. Well, let's start off with the basics. Um, what's an ultralight, and then how'd you get started with ultralights? Okay, um, what's an ultralight? That is an interesting question because the answer varies by what country you're in, and uh, to this day there's a disagreement around the world as to what an ultralight really is. Most of my focus has been around what's an ultralight in the U.S., since that's where we are, and that's you know what our focus has been from a market perspective. And also, you know, the answer to the question varies not only by country, it also varies by time. We could also say what is what did an ultralight used to be, and these things have changed. But Cutting to the chase, today what an ultralight is in America, legally, is an airplane that has an all-up weight, empty weight, of 254 pounds or less, including the engine, including the everything, uh, 
and uh, you know can carry just a single person with five gallons of fuel, cruise no faster than 62 miles an hour, um, and stall no uh, stall no faster than 28 miles per hour. So you know there's some some restrictions there, but pretty much if you fit into those restrictions, you are a U.S. ultralight. In other countries, it varies quite a bit. In Canada, an ultralight. I believe can have two seats, you know, and don't email me if I'm wrong, but, <laughs> uh, and can go up quite a bit heavier on the weight. Now, if you go over to England, an ultralight is very much like the U.S. ultralights, except that they do their math a little bit differently, you know, and you end up with some different combinations. But uh, we pay most attention to the U.S. rules, although we're trying to sell some planes in England, too. So we've worked very hard to create these very, very lightweight airplanes. Um, historically, an ultralight used to mean a flying lawn chair and engendered that same feeling of safety. And we've, we, we, we have worked with our design and, uh, you know, you need to come see the design. I know it's wet today, but uh, the design, our designs look, act, feel, and fly like real airplanes. They are real airplanes. Essentially, what we do is we threw a Piper Super Cub in the wash, hung it up to dry. It lost, it shrunk about 50%. We've ended up with a one-man Piper Super Cub. Uh, that's our ultralight. Uh, your second part of the question, we can come back to that some more if you want, but the second part of the question is how I got into this. Um, you know, it's kind of like I have a, uh, a confession of flying. I have always wanted to fly. I learned, I mean, I wanted to fly when I was a kid, as many of us did. Um, I can remember when I was 12 or 13 years old, a guy in my uh, church, you know, had a twin-engine airplane, and he took me for flying on a bright, sunny afternoon, and I loved it. To this day, I can still remember the feeling of takeoff, you know, the first takeoff when you get off the ground. But uh, went to work for Cessna as a college student, as an intern, learned to fly with a $9 an hour wet, brand-new Cessna 152. That was the days, 1979. Um, started uh, a, uh, you know, been involved in business, was able to use a Cessna 206 in the business in, in later years, loved it, just loved flying. And then when uh, we sold the business, uh, we decided to start an aviation company. Uh, we went from computers into aviation, which is usually a, just a bad sequence of events, but uh, there we are. If you ever want to lose money, go into aviation. Now, if you ever want to make a small fortune, start with a large one. <laughs> I wish I'd, I wish I'd, <laughs> I wish I could have started with a large one. So here's the deal. Um, I decided to make a clean sheet design on an ultralight aircraft about three and a half, four years ago. Started working with carbon fiber. Uh, thoroughly enjoyed the design process, but one day, while surfing the internet, I ran across a classified ad online somewhere that said, essentially, you know, you can buy your own aircraft design, here's all the tooling, do it. So I bought it, we bought the tooling, moved it to Wichita, and uh, started working on an upgraded design, started incorporating carbon fiber, uh, and uh, introduced this airplane called a B-Light. Um, and it's been a wonderful adventure. Uh, aircraft design with uh, carbon fiber spars, updated the 
updated all of the, the fittings, designed machining, uh, tooling, uh, designed new ways to build the wings, cut the weight down. So we actually can, can deliver a plane that has a weight, a flying weight of about 200 pounds that uh, is a phenomenal little airplane. It really is. You know, a 200 pound airplane that can lift uh, 300 pounds of useful load uh, you know, if, if, if you thought of a 2,000-pound airplane that could lift a 3,000-pound useful load, you'd be saying nobody does that, or nearly nobody does that. But that's kind of what we do every day in the world of ultralight airplanes. Now, my, my experience with ultralights, and, and I will be honest, I'm, there isn't much of it, yeah, is yeah. I visual... I, well, you need to, we need to correct that. Um, I visualize basically a powered hang glider which is, I believe, what started ultralights. Is that correct? Those kind of... Yeah. Yeah, that is... Uh, I don't know the early history well. I wasn't there. I know there's other people who do know that history pretty well. There's some guy who had a, like a wing ding, literally, you know, something like that, a, a two, uh, a hang glider, uh, and he decided to mount an engine on the thing and he went flying and it worked. And that's what I understand is where it all started. And that would have been, I don't know, what was that, early 1980s? I don't know, you know, dark times. Um, one of the things, um, what's the certification process for the aircraft and to become a ultralight pilot? Okay, the certification process is there is none. And to become an ultralight pilot, there's two answers. Do you want to become a safe ultralight pilot or you just want to be a pilot who happens to fly ultralights for a brief period of time? Um, so you have to pick between it. In the U.S., there is not a single regulation on the certification of Part 103. They do call for the possibility, they, they call for a technical committee that basically rubber stamps you know, the fact that you've got a design that meets the requirements such as I've already stated. But in terms of being a pilot, once again, there's no requirement. And in fact, that's one of the broad appeals of the, of the ultralight, uh, the whole market, the, the, the atmosphere. Because, uh, and it's wonderful, let's put it this way, the best possible scenario is the guy who maybe has had a heart attack, lost his medical, or maybe is taking some medication, can't get a medical, and he is grounded. Yet he loves to fly. He acknowledges that he can't use it for carrying people around, or he can't, you know, you know, can't carry passengers, can't use it in his business. But he can still get an ultralight aircraft and thoroughly engage in aviation. Uh, now, pilot requirements. So there's there's no medical requirement. Bad medical, we don't care. The FAA doesn't care. Um, no training requirements whatsoever. But now let's put on our thinking cap and think about what that really means. And the answer is, if I'm going to get in a Piper Cub and take off, I'm going to darn well know how to fly it before I commit aviation. So we recommend, it's not law, you know, it's not contract, but we would recommend that before you take our aircraft and fly it, you're, you're, you are you're are solo proficient in the tail dragger or, you know, the trike gear aircraft of your choice. If you can't solo a Piper Cub, you have no business soloing a B-Light tail dragger. If you can't solo a Cessna 152, you have no business, you know, doing ours. And you don't have to have a medical 
to be able to get to that level. If someone that says, you know, I'm signing you off and you're ready to go uh, solo on this stuff, then you've reached the proficiency level that we recommend in order to fly our plane. Now, another piece of good news um, is that the FAA in the last eight weeks just changed the law so that you can do legal transition training with an instructor in a light two-seat experimental aircraft. So in other words, it's now possible to hop in a plane that's going to fly very similar. For instance, a Kit Fox or a, you know, a Champ or well, not a Champ, but you know, any of the light uh, two-seat airplanes, and you can get instruction and get yourself ready to go and fly our plane. So common sense applies, but the law has kind of stepped out of the equation. Well, let's talk a little bit more about the B-Light. Um, is it a kit? Is it going to come pre-made? It's a 50% build? Wh where does it stand? Uh, the answer is kit, yes. Uh, $6,800 and up gets you a kit. Pre-made, yes. Uh, $16.5 up gets you a pre-made airplane. 50, 51% built doesn't apply because we're not building an experimental aircraft. We're building an ultralight. So we can build it. You can build it. You know, your, 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 your kid can build it, we don't care, there's no certification, sign-off, approval, testing, anything like that. It's just, once again, the common sense of good home building applies. The same, you know, visions of quality in what you're doing apply. Now, side point, if you want to build it as a registered, N-numbered experimental aircraft, by all means do so. And then the 51% rule applies, and we have applied to the FAA to obtain a formal uh, uh, letter, which they will give you, that says that this will be a 51% legal uh, experimental aircraft. And we're in the pro we've already submitted the letter. Uh, there's some site inspection they have to do. So the answer is yes to all three, you know, and that's where we're at. And what powers it? Um, good question. Uh, rubber bands are generally not enough, so <laughs> uh, the answer is is that we've powered the plane with uh, quite a few different power plants. The ones that are really fascinating, uh, Hearth makes a great 50 horsepower opposed twin engine that's deadly smooth and unbelievably strong. Uh, for part 103 you need to derate it, which you can do with a throttle stop or with a pitch setting on your propeller. They also make a good single-cylinder engine. Uh, there's a company up in Canada that makes a great single-cylinder engine. Uh, it's called Compact Radial Engines. It used to be, a, it's based on a Zanzatera, which may be a familiar name to a lot of people around the world. Uh, great engines, uh, nice and smooth. Uh, there's a good twin inline. People have flown this kind of aircraft with a lot of Rotax 503s. A 447 might work. So anything between 25 and 50 horsepower is a good candidate to fly the plane. It will fly spectacularly uh, with as little as 28. I've got video to prove it. Uh, I haven't posted it on the web because it comes from a segment I just shot with Mythbusters. That's another story. Uh, but uh, we got phenomenal uh, performance just with a 28 horsepower engine in the right prop. So. Uh, people assume it can't be done, but it can be, even with a little engine. I mean, great climb performance. And um, when we started talking before we started the interview, um, you got some very good news this week from the experimental air 
Aviation Association, the EAA. You want to talk a little bit about um, that news? Yeah, I will. What you're referring to is the we got notified a few weeks ago that uh, the EAA has selected me as this year's recipient of the August Raspit Award, which is uh, just pretty interesting to me. I'm still trying to grapple with what that means. I mean, the first thing is, i got to be honest, I'd never heard of August Raspit or the August Raspit Award. But, uh, you know, I went to the EAA's website and uh, checked it out. And it's an award that's been given out for 40-some years, and basically uh, it's gone out to a who's who of aviation. Um, and I am hum humbled and honored to be in that particular, you know, group of people, you know. Some of those people have faded into the dust of history, not very many. Uh, some of those people have done some extraordinary things in aviation, like Bert Rutan's there, Pabrez Paul Pabrezny's there, Stitz is there, um, all kinds of people that are well-known names in, in aviation. They said in the letter that they sent to me that there was three things that they cited as the reasons why they gave it to me. And the first was the work that I'd done in bringing carbon fiber into ultralights. It's kind of stunning to me, but in the last 10 years, ultralights sort of went dead here in the U.S. Now they're coming back. Um, they were out, out, outgunned by light sport for the last decade. The hope of and then the failure of light sport to you know, bring in low-cost, planes. The second thing that they cited was uh, my work with the lightweight instrumentation. And you were at the booth, and uh, although we didn't really stop and look long, we've our instruments have been a great thing. People look at them, they're kind of stunned that they can get full functionality out of instruments that weigh less than an ounce. You know, nobody done that. And that's another stunning thing to me. After I brought those to the market, uh, you know, I'd have people come up to me who were familiar with electronics and, and micro-instrumentation, and they'd say, you know, I was thinking about this, and now you've done it. You know, it's like, well, why didn't you do it? You know, you left the, uh, the opportunity was there. So, and then the third thing is this technology that I've been working on now for the last uh, good long while, which is a water detector in uh, fuel. And... Uh, that's pretty cool stuff. Now I'm, I'm going to stop. I'm going to tell you a little more about that. Uh, there is some technology available that detects water and fuel, but uh, what ours does goes so far beyond that. It detects basically. It can give you indications as to how much water is in the fuel. Uh, it can give you an indication as to whether or not it's cleared. Uh, future versions of the same technology will show you the difference between. Uh, gasoline and jet fuel, so if you're misfueled, it sees that, and uh, that's killed people. Um, there's, uh, uh, I've had requests for stuff like, will it detect the difference between uh, diesel and gasoline, and, and you know, I've got to go back and, um, and do some work on that, but you know, there's just all kinds of opportunity there, and that's a, an awesome technology that uh, 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 looks very promising. We're just getting ready now to deliver the very first beta units of our technology, you know, and we've got great interest from uh, uh, some some people in the OEM community, some companies in the OEM community. So, I probably have more passion for that than about anything else that I'm doing right now. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. It's been um, really interesting. Um, I've been ending every interview um, with a question 
a one-word question, and feel free to answer it any way you want. And the one-word question is Oshkosh. Way better than last year. It was so wet last year, even though it's rained today. Last year was splosh-kosh. Well, James, thank you very much. Um, I'm looking forward to having a personal tour of the Bee Light, and um, we will hopefully talk to you soon in the future, um, especially with these new projects coming on. Thank you again. Thank you very much. My pleasure. I'm standing here at the Young Eagles uh, Pavilion here at Oshkosh, and I'm talking to Butch Boehner. Butch, thanks for spending some time with us. Thank you. Tell us about Young Eagles and what it is that you do. What it is is a program for any kids between the ages of 8 and 17, and we introduce them to flight. Uh, we talk a little bit about the aircraft, different controls on it, uh, different instruments. After that, we go for a flight, which is about 15 to 20 minutes. After the flight, if there's more questions, we answer them about anything they saw up there. And they receive a certificate that's signed by the co-coordinators, uh, Jeff Skiles and Sully Sullenberger, who were the pilots on the Miracle on the Hudson. Right. And they also receive a logbook from Sporty's Aircraft. There's an access code where they can do the complete ground school course online, and there's no cost to it at all. Well, what sort of aircraft generally do you use to do that? Just 150s and stuff like that? Well, Cessna 150s, Pipers. Um, Anything some, you can get your hands on, basically. Pretty much. Yeah, some yeah. up down the Warbirds, T6s, T34s. Others use home-built RVs. Yep. Grumman Tigers, a lot of different aircraft. We, we talk a lot on our show about uh, dream building and how you know fathers can pass it on to their sons so that you hook them young, we say, and get them interested in aviation. What sort of participation levels are you finding here in the US generally? You have a great culture for aviation here, something we probably don't enjoy so much in Australia. So what is it that you do right here to keep encouraging that, uh, that attitude? Probably the best is uh, the kids we have taken in the past enjoy it and they tell other kids. That's yep. probably the best way to get the word out there. And they keep going like myself. My father flew, so I used to fly with him and his friends. So myself was rather natural go to the airport on the weekends and go fly with somebody. Yep, yep. And when I became old enough, became a pilot and everything, joined EAA, and I'm giving that back to all the kids that come on out for rides. Yep. And are you finding that it's uh, perhaps a little bit more difficult in this day of high security and all that sort of stuff? Or are you seeing levels drop off or are you seeing it remain pretty steady? Uh, some of the pilots have uh, gotten older, so they've you know quit flying for the age, but we still have a great number that come out. Security's not really that bad. Yep. Most of us are at the smaller airports where we don't, you know, have to go through metal detectors and all that. Yeah. But, you no, know, we still have a pretty good turnout. And I don't know whether you know this, but roughly how many chapters would you have throughout the United States? Well, there's hundreds, if maybe a thousand. There's chapters all over. All over. We had a meeting the other day up here at Ashkash, and they said out of the 1.6 million that flown, 18,000 have become pilots. Wow. Pretty good conversion, right? Yes. Do you guys also go out into the schools, into the high schools, and promote aviation that way? We do some at different airports. If there's a breakfast or something, we'll promote the program that way. Also through churches, we talk about it. Some of the schools. Um, The best is just word of mouth. Yeah, yeah. But the whole idea is to to teach them while they're young that aviation is fun, it's accessible, 
and something that's well worth considering for a hobby and for a career. Uh, yes. Like I said, if they go through the program or for the flight, they might not all become pilots. They might become mechanics, people in the control towers. Yep. Every bit Other, is important. Yes. Everybody's important in aviation. Yep. Absolutely. Now, an interesting stat. Butch, tell us how many people you've taken through. Uh, as of today, it was just registered 1,710. All on your own? All on my own in a Cessna 150, a two-place aircraft. That is amazing. You deserve a medal and just on your own just for that? Well, I just enjoy doing it. Yeah. There's a lot of us out there. Some have flown more, some less, but it, numbers to me doesn't really matter. I yeah. just enjoy flying. Yep. That's a very cool thing you do, and it's a very cool organization. I appreciate you spending some time with us today. Thank you for coming. Thank you. Gentlemen, I'm hearing an accent that's definitely not from around here nor from around where I'm from. Who are you and where are you from? Uh, I'm Tom and I'm from Sweden, Stockholm, Sweden. We came in Sunday, so yeah. we're staying for the whole week. Cool. Yeah. And your name is, sir? My name is Hans Olsson and I'm from uh, Sweden, the western part. Okay. Close to the Norwegian border. And have you come as part of a tour group or are you uh, individuals who've just met up over here? No, no we, we are seven. Yeah, we are seven. We, okay. we went here. Uh, it's a couple of friends, so, so we're here for the our show mainly. Yeah. <laughs> so. And how many times have you folks been? Is this your first or? I've Tom? been here five times. Oh great. Uh, so, so and a couple of the, the, the fellas in, in the, the group has been here a few times. Yeah. So. And you sir? It's my second time. Okay. And what is it that keeps bringing you guys back? Yeah. All the airplanes of course. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, the airplanes. Yeah. We've had a number of people say they, they come back to meet friends and things like that, but do you see anyone you've met before or things like that? Or no, what? I haven't. No, we just mainly walk around and listen to some uh, lectures and, and yeah. Uh, yeah, watch their shows. Okay. And buy spare parts. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, buy spare parts is a good one. Now, I understand you're learning to fly? Yeah, I'm, I'm going to start learning to fly uh, early next year. Excellent. Uh, so so uh, I will be a pilot, uh, as you do. Okay. <laughs> so. And you, sir? I've been flying for 30 years. What do you fly? Citabria. Oh, very nice aircraft. Uh, on floats. On floats? Yeah. Wow, that must take a bit of a, a kick out of its performance. Oh, yeah. We have a lot of lakes yes. at home. So okay. Much more lakes than... Uh, Run waste. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it gives you more opportunity, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Well, gentlemen, thank you very much yeah, for coming you. on the show. Thank you. Cool. Thank you. Okay, well, we're standing here at a, uh, an interesting uh, compound here, just a couple of blocks up at Camp Shola from where we're staying, and it's a, a really huge group of South Africans that have made the trek here to, uh, to uh, Air Venture 2011. I'm standing here with Graham Cooper, and he's going to tell us all about it. Graham, welcome. Thank you very much. Now, uh, you guys have been having a lot of fun here, a lot of music, a lot of dancing, a lot of singing. It uh, seems to be a very social atmosphere here. Tell us about how this uh, came to be. Well, you know, it's all rumours and stuff when you're still in South Africa and you hear about these parties, but you can't imagine, once you get here, to see the magnitude of everything and the fun the guys are having, the, the camaraderie, and it just brings everybody together. I think we're the noisiest group at Oshkosh, for sure. Well, you, you were the first group that we heard when we came in here, and uh, you're having a good time here, but... You know, we've got a... How many tents have we got here? We've got tents all around the place. You've got a little uh, little shack here with all your uh, coffee and your local time clock set up. It's a very impressive setup. Now, there's 95 um, tour people on our group. And uh, as you see, there's a kitchen. We have our breakfast here. Not a big breakfast, but we have a nice breakfast. And the guys go out for the day, come back, sit under the shade, and then uh, we have a... They normally prepare a serious dinner. Yep guys eat and because of the sun setting here so low you lose track of time and 
and by the time it's dark, the body's going strong. Yeah, yeah. Now, there's a number of tour groups that come across from Australia to Oshkosh um, every year. I assume that's what you guys have done. Have you come across as a group, or did you all sort of meet here? No, it's, it's a group. Uh, Neil Bowden has put this together from South Africa, and we all travel together. We have a pre-meeting uh, in South Africa just for the guys to meet one another. But because the guys are so scattered over the country, um, everybody can't attend that. And basically, on the aircraft, you don't even know that some of the guys are part of your group. And once you get into the bus at Chicago, you see, I saw this guy on the aircraft, and he's part of the group. Right, there you that's go. That's where it starts. Right, okay. So How what do you... Oh, sorry, David. How long was the flight over? Oh, my gosh. I don't really want to talk about it, because, you know, we've got to go back now. We've got to sit on that seat. <laughs> <laughs> you and me both, don't oh, worry about it. Oh, <laughs> my goodness, you guys have got a long way as well. But um, total time from start to finish, we're looking at about 20-odd hours. Yeah. And you flew out of uh, Joburg, something like that? We flew out of... Uh, Joburg, yeah, yeah, Joburg yeah. International. So, you come across which which way do you come across? You probably track up through Europe, I guess. We went, uh, we flew Air France, and we were very privileged being aviation people flying in the A380. Oh, lovely! That was an experience on its own. Um, I live right next to Johannesburg International, so I see it often. And you know, when the first one came into South Africa, there was a horde of people with cameras and everything taking pics of it and so. On. Um, but that was a major experience for all of us. Yeah. And we flew to Paris. And then we got into an Airbus A340 and came around to Chicago. How's the um, the aviation scene, the general aviation scene across there in South Africa? Is it a pretty strong market over there? It's a niche market. It's, it's, it's a niche market, uh, the aviation side. Um, but it's strong. It's camaraderie once again. Uh, in aviation, you don't want to screw up because the community is so small, you'll be standing out like a sore thumb. Makes the news, yeah. Yeah, yeah definitely. Yeah. And do you see a lot of pilots, I know from Australia, a lot of pilots tend to come across here to the United States because they don't have user fees, for example, and it's, it's a lot less expensive to learn to fly. Do you, do you know of a lot of uh, pilots, perhaps, that do the same from South Africa, come here to the States? No, there's a couple of guys that have come for those reasons. Um, but I think the majority, a lot of the guys on, on our tour group, is, is their first time. And you don't know what to expect. And although we were told it's big... I'm sorry, words can't describe it. It's unbelievable. I I really don't know what I have to try and explain to my aviation friends back home how big this is. Uh, Unless I go up and take a video and show them. They won't believe us in any case. And and even if you describe it exactly the way you see it, they're not going to understand it. (laughs) It's undescribable, actually. Even the amount of aircraft, uh, the initial start of the show, there was like 100 aircraft in the the sky. It's, It's amazing. Yeah. I think the aircraft on the one bank of Oshkosh parked as visitors is more more than the aircraft we have in South Africa. Well, there you go. Yeah, I think there's a similar statistic in Australia. I think there's more aircraft here than we have on our civil register. So, Correct, yeah. There you go. That was the first thing that... Uh, this is the first time I've been here, and it was the same thing. The sheer scale of the place is indescribable. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Graham, I believe you do airshow commentary uh, back there in South Africa. I speak the other foreign language as well in South Africa, called Afrikaans, and... Uh, I do the Hrublestal air show. There, there are other teams of commentators in South Africa who do the Barberton air show. And more and more the guys are asking me to come and help out because of the Afrikaans commentary that I do. Right, yep. Good fun, I love it. Yep, and they have a, what's the air show circuit like over there? Is it? Mainly happens during the winter when it's good flying conditions and the air is nice and clean. We also tend to get a lot of rain and I think that's the reason why they run the air shows in the morning in the winter, uh, less rain, because there's a lot of money invested in every air show and to have it rain out costs you. But then, 
Um, they've been nailed at Rand Airport before in the winter, 16 or 17 of May last year, or the year before, totally rained out. Really? Yeah. Totally. Occupational hazard, I guess, with air shows. Yeah, yeah. Now, before we wrap up here, is it is it possible at all to talk about perhaps the, the most impressive thing you've seen here, or is it, is it something that sticks out in your mind? Yes. The one thing that sticks out, the friendliness of the Americans. It is amazing. Um, obviously, we've popped out of camp and gone to the shops and did a bit of shopping for the family and so on, but you don't walk into to any one store and they don't greet you. You feel welcome. There's a real atmosphere except, here, isn't except it? Except when we make too much noise in the camp, then we're not too welcome here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But other than that, it's just absolutely amazing the friendliness of the American people yeah. and, and willingly to help you. That stands out. Yeah. Well, I feel I can see that you're having a lot of fun here and it's been fun to watch you guys just partying uh, every night. It's been really impressive. I wish we'd thrown something together similar down there at the My Transponder base, but uh, it's been uh, great to talk to you, Graham. Thanks very much for spending some time with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Well, there we go, and I think, uh, gentlemen, our uh, air venture, our adventure at air venture, is drawing to a close. It's been a busy week. It's been hot. It's been wet. <laughs> it's been humid. It's been awesome. It's been exhausting. Uh, what do we think? What are, what are our impressions? It's our first time here. Well, it's our first time here, Grant and uh, and Baz. Um, David's been here once before. Mike's been here once before. How do you sum it up? How can you sum it up? You can't. Uh, you can talk and be told and watch and see videos and photos and really think you're getting got an idea of what you're going to have and you won't know until you actually get here. And I mean, there's everything. There's from an amazing number of aircraft, uh, meeting people that you only ever dreamed of meeting, um, heroes, things like that, uh, seeing aircraft you never knew existed, touching ones you've always dreamed of touching, like the B-29 and things like oh, that. Yeah. Uh, the survival of Camp Shola with those showers and oh, the, the, the porta potties. American porta potties are very different to Australian. Uh, I'm really just I, I'm gobsmacked by the uh, lack of technology and the lack of amenity in there, and it's it's really pretty basic. Just all I can say is don't look in. But I have to say, I mean, you know, it has been done really well. You talk about the porta potties, but you know. They are everywhere. This camp is absolutely massive, and they they have catered well for it. I mean, oh, you know, we're standing here in, in in Camp Shola. I mean, you know, there's there's two supermarkets on the campgrounds here. There's a couple of shops. There's a laundry service, a first aid medical centre. Um, there's bus services. Buses running everywhere. The yellow American school buses that we all see on the TV. Well, they're everywhere, taking you all around the place. Mind you, I got trapped on one for about an hour the other day. Couldn't get off. That was an adventure in itself. <laughs> but there's also, don't forget, mate, there's also the complete and utter lack of garbage. Uh, everyone picks up their own garbage. They do have some volunteers doing it in the, sh- in the showgrounds, in the actual uh, air show environment, but there's porta potties everywhere there as well. There's food. There's water stations where you can just get yourself some water. But the big thing is that I have not seen any trash. The, the, the people, the, either people aren't dropping it or when it is dropped... You'll see people who aren't even volunteers. They're not even paid to, or volunteering to pick up uh, trash. They'll just pick, bend over, pick it up and put it in the garbage. It's, yeah. it's just well, absolutely amazing. And you I can tell you you've been that. here in the States for more than a week because you're saying trash instead of rubbish, so there yeah, you go. Yeah, well, I have to make it work <laughs> for everyone. But I, I've got to tell you, the comparison with Avalon, where there are significantly less people, aircraft and so on, I spread over uh, about half the size of this. Sure. Mate, the, the garbage that I have seen blowing around the place at Avalon and that people leave on the flight line and things like that from where they've just been sitting is intensely different. Uh, these people have come here and they're not dropping anything. It's amazing. There's a real community spirit, and we've talked about that in a couple of the other shows. David, uh, the volunteers, they're everywhere, aren't they? 
Yeah, it's kind of amazing. We sort of befriended a young lady who her job was, and she volunteered to do this every night, was to sit in front of the Camping World tent to watch their merchandise overnight from 10 p.m. to 8 o'clock in the morning. And, and you walked by in the morning on the way to the showers, and she was pleasant as can be and said good morning to you. And that's the kind of volunteer spirit that's out here at Oshkosh. It's not about the airplanes, folks. It's about the people. Yeah, absolutely. Well, right. I did actually do a Vox Pop with a couple of guys from Sweden who they said, oh, no, we don't really meet that many people. We're mostly here for the airplanes. <laughs> and that was what they You've been like, practicing that all week. Yeah. And, of course, Baz, who is a native European, is about to reach over and throttle you. But uh, <laughs> He's not from Sweden, though. There you go. Baz, what's your highlight been for this week? Uh, it's somewhere you know, close between the Bonanza fly-in and the, uh, the flight in the Remos where actually, you know, me at the controls landing uh, in the vicinity of the green dot. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, there's a story to that, folks. <laughs> and we've just told that story. Now, you've been planning this trip. Uh, you're, you're the first of the PCDU crew to come, and we appreciate all the help you've given us this week, mate. I mean, ostensibly, you were here for a holiday. We've kind of hijacked your time, and you've, uh, you've been very generous with your time. We really appreciate the work you do for us here, oh, as always. Oh, that's right, but it's, you know, it's open doors for me hanging with this, this, this media pass around my neck. I haven't paid for a lot of meals here. Yeah. I've been getting airplane rides, so there's What's, something in it for me as well. We should talk about the challenge that we've had all week, is to try and get every meal every day covered. Oh, God, <laughs> guys, guys, guys. I, for one, have been per- perfectly happy... I, for one, have been perfectly happy to not worry about the fact that occasionally I have paid for food. I've also gone a very long way to not bother having food at all, and I feel like I've lost at least a kilo. Well, <laughs> even if you do eat, you're walking at least 10 miles a day. I don't. I, I think we've all been up and down that flight line, and sometimes very rapidly, and you wonder, oh my God, I'm halfway there and I'm going to die. Somebody get me an ambulance. <laughs> Hey, uh, David, um, one of the things we hear buzzing around here constantly are those uh, those uh, Bell 47 helicopters. Now, uh, let's talk about the ride that we had yesterday. We wanted to take one together. As it turns out, uh, well, probably at least one of us is too fat. That's probably me. So we had to take separate rides, but uh, what an experience that was. Yeah, it, it it's kind of amazing. Um, all day long, there are three Bell 47s flying people over Oshkosh, and luckily we videotaped it so you guys can share see the skies um we were fortunate enough yesterday to fly over the 787 and the 787 um was just an airplane surrounded by a sea of people so it was pretty awesome and it was even better flying with you it was awesome mate and we, we've had an awesome thing i think that's one of the things we've we've, we've done this week has proved how, how well social media works particularly in the aviation sphere david and i in particular have become good friends over skype over the last couple of years and i can tell you mate it's been an uh, just a, a wonderful thing being able to meet you in person and uh, we, we really uh, appreciate all the work that you do for us mate well like I said and long may it continue like I said it's great having my Australian staff here in North America <laughs> yeah we'll talk he'll be practicing that, that line for a week <laughs> we'll talk about that <laughs> now we're going to drag Mike in here Mike now you know you've been driving us all around the place but you've been to Oshkosh before just for a day but this experience has been pretty exhausting, hasn't it? But have you enjoyed yourself? Oh, most definitely. Uh, I spent maybe a half a day here four or five years ago and uh, spent a whole week with uh, all my friends, new friends, and met interesting people and saw lots of airplanes, uh, lots of things that you never thought would be around here and uh, met a modeler. Uh, I'm in the RC modeling, so uh, that was cool. Um, just just uh, 
words can't explain. You just have to come and uh, see everything and take it in. Yeah, and uh, I noticed you picked up a couple of DVDs to take home with you with uh, all sorts of technical stuff on it, but uh, you've actually met some some quite well-known people in the modeling community, in the RC modeling community, haven't you? Yeah, yeah, I uh, met a guy talked to me about uh, pylon racing, that's what I'm into, and uh, uh, I met uh, Michael Goulian, the Red Bull racer, I met uh, John Parker, an arena racer, uh, talking about speed, you know, uh, what's their tricks, and things like that, so it's definitely a learning experience, and uh, enjoyed every minute. Yep, absolutely. Well, we've really appreciated you coming along, and uh, your, your poor old van, it's been weighed down right to the gunnels with all our bags and uh, bottled water, the tents. Let's talk about putting up the tent, boys. Uh, how, how good are we at putting up tents? Not good at all. I wouldn't, <laughs> I wouldn't have a clue because I was busy capturing content. Oh, that's time. exactly right. David, how good are we at putting up tents? Terrible. We suck. <laughs> well, I know because I had the... I had the end of the tent that I deflated my air mattress this morning, and the net result was I had about an inch of water underneath it. <laughs> yeah, I yeah. didn't know I had a water bed all week. <laughs> Any wonder it's been uh, sloshing around in there, but uh, no, it's, it's been interesting. Uh, I, I think if I was to come back here again, if we were fortunate enough to be able to come back here again next year or, or whenever, there are some uh, some recreational vehicles around here the size of office blocks, and uh, you know, I think actually, Grant, uh, we ought to get our eyes on one of those because I don't think I could do the tent thing again, to be honest with you. I know, I totally agree. I would uh, definitely have to uh, ensure there were fans in there or a very hush-kitted generator that we could run all night because uh, I need that air conditioning, man. I am so dying in the tent without air conditioning. But that does bring us to another thing. Um, if it wasn't for a certain trailer that was in our campsite by the My Transponder team, um, our life would have been even more miserable. Yeah. Um, they were awesome to us, giving us things that we didn't even know we needed. But now that we've used them, we want. Yes. Yeah. Um, and Lots of neat gear. And the bottom line is they opened doors for us. They gave us hospitality. And I know awesome. they are they've awesome. Been awesome, and we owe them a debt of thanks. We absolutely do. Now we talk about one of those RVs that's the size of an office block. Well, I can tell you, Mike Miley from MyTransponder.com has uh, turned up with one of those. When you hear us talk about in the closing credits that uh, production facilities were provided by MyTransponder, that's what it is. Uh, of course, Sennheiser, Canon, and ICANN—they've provided uh, lighting for us. They've provided uh, some fantastic Sennheiser uh, wireless microphones. Absolutely fantastic. You should check those out at Sennheiser.com. Uh, and of course Canon have been providing some wonderful uh, high definition cameras we actually brought a couple of video cameras with us but these Canon cameras uh, were uh, really wonderful, a real godsend for us and uh, although we've not been able to get any video out while we've been here unfortunately the bandwidth is just uh, quite restricted but uh, we'll be working on those uh, as we get home so, we've got a lot of thank yous to do. We should kick those off. We've talked about uh, Mike Miley, Rod Rackick from uh, MyTransponder.com. They have treated us like kings. They've really yeah, spoiled us, and we really do appreciate it. Uh, we've also got Dave Allen and uh, Damon Favor from uh, the new one, Other People's, the new show, Other People's Airplanes. They've yeah, been doing some yeah. wonderful video this week. I've seen it, uh, you know, despite the fact we're in one of them. Yeah, well, that, that was that was the blooper reel, I thought, <laughs> our, whole, our whole appearance. But uh, one of the things I'd also like to thank is uh, Stephen Force, Steve Tupper, for actually turning up and... Uh, after briefing us all and telling us over time about coining people to then totally fall for the coin joke. Yeah. He, we, I managed to coin him a couple of times and uh, yeah, it was good. It was great to meet Steve Tupper. It's been great to meet, uh, to, to meet all these people and there's been a lot of other guys around from a lot of the other podcasts around 
Um, we had a big uh, tweet up the other night. We had a big. Uh, the, we we tried a new format for Potterpalooza, which was was interesting. I mean, they, they, there's a lot of extra podcasters around now that weren't there when they did the first one, so they had to try a different format. Be interesting to see how that comes out in the audio. I haven't actually listened to that yet. But uh, yeah, we met guys from the Mile High Flyers and, uh, and many other podcasts, so uh, that was really good. We also want to thank our sponsors, Grant, and we'll start off with aviationadvertiser.com.au. That's uh, Ben Morgan. He's been a big supporter of us uh, since, uh, you know, about late last year, and um, he's come on board to uh, help us get over here. That's right. Uh, so Aviation Advertiser has helped out. Uh, the one that really helped was uh, jetride.com.au. Uh, Team Pracy is Pracy Racing. Yep. Uh, those guys, uh, they managed to get us here to Chicago, and we've been able to get on from there. But without them... They were the, the core, the inspiration. That, that's what got us kicked off. So thanks big time to jetride.com.au slash PCDU and uh, also to uh, Pracy Racing for doing that. Yep, Pracy Racing. They're going to wipe the floor there at the Reno Air Races this year. We're, we're sure that uh, they're going to uh, get in there and have a bit of Aussie spirit and uh, just show how it's done. And uh, one of the other sponsors is, of course, uh, the uh, team at Gips Aero. Gips Aero, the uh, makers of the GA8 air van, a big Australian success story. Uh, they uh, came foot to the fore and helped us out, and in return we've been doing some social media and video work with them. We'll be putting out a special episode uh, that focuses on their efforts here in North America and what they've been getting up to lately, as well as the aircraft itself. So big thanks to Gips Aero. Now also, Throbby Air, the lowest of the low. Now, of course, uh, Robert E. Coli, he probably doesn't even know that his accounts department forwarded us some money to come across here. So uh, I'm sure Robert E. Coli from uh, thrombyair.com uh, will be very disappointed to know that he sponsored us. But uh, no, in all seriousness, uh, we do appreciate the uh, team at Throbby Air. They came through and were uh, extremely generous in uh, helping us get across, and we uh, we certainly appreciate it. That's correct. Uh, don't forget, everyone is treated as equals in Throbby Air. You're all the bottom. You're the bottom of the pile, and they, you're treated as such with Thrombier. But the one last group that we'd really like to thank who have uh, helped sponsor us to get here were all those people who donated. Some put in $10, some put in $50, a couple put in even more than that. But it's the, uh, the people who all just chipped in. We had a whole lot of donations come through from people. Many said, just go for it. One did ask us to um, arrange for a certain podcaster to have a, a, a really nasty, uh, incriminating photo taken with a goat. Guy, mate, we've really tried. We've tried our hardest to make it happen, but we just can't find a goat in the whole of Wisconsin who's willing to do it. Uh, I'm sorry, man, but we really tried. So hopefully you've enjoyed the rest of the coverage. And uh, right now we've got a B-17 flying overhead. This one's been going back and forth every clear day. Uh, I think that's the aluminum overcast, isn't it? And, uh, yeah, he's been flying back and forth overhead, uh, taking passengers out of uh, Fond du Lac, I think it is. And absolutely amazing that you can get to the end of a week and be walking along and go, oh, I know that sound of those radials. That's the B-17. And not even look up because you've seen them so often. Yeah. But, yeah, definitely thanks to uh, all our listeners. Uh, You guys rock. All right, so as we wrap things up here, we should talk about what we're doing next. Uh, Baz, you're looking up in the sky there, but I'll uh, just drag you back down here. Uh, I'm going to be staying on in the States for another couple of weeks, heading down south. Where to for you next? Well, apparently tomorrow morning one of uh, Grant's... uh Kiwi friends uh, might be able to give me a ride back to O'Hare and otherwise I'll have to find find my, my way there myself and uh, fly back to Australia. Yeah, yeah should, Grant. Know, should know more about that later this afternoon for you, mate. Yeah. Huh. So, uh, Grant, you're heading back uh, what, on Tuesday, I think, heading back to Australia and uh, heading back to work, back to the bump and grind in the winter weather. That's right. Uh, Mike and I are going to break camp tomorrow morning with your help, sir, because you'll be around. Yeah. And we're going to strip it down. We're giving all the camping gear to Stu Stevenson. He's uh, from Pilot's Journey. 
Uh, they're looking at uh, putting together a concept uh, probably at the end of next Oshkosh to have a whole lot of gear stored here so that it's easy for all the podcasters to just turn up, get their gear and go um, without having to lug it from all around the world and or, or all around the country. So, yeah, Mike and I are going to bug out tomorrow morning. Uh, I have yet to determine exactly when with Mike, and uh, it's probably going to be too early for me to be able to go and get uh, merchandise. So I'm going to have to go and hit some sales this afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. What about you, David? Back to uh, back to the East Coast? Yeah, um, uh, the Rob Mark Mobile should be picking me up shortly. Um, and In the clown car? <laughs> Uh, and I will make sure that I say hi to Simba for everybody. Thank you. Yeah. Um, and uh, I will be home in beautiful Pennsylvania by 10.30 tonight and sleeping in my own bed. And thank God for my own shower. <laughs> <laughs> and your own toilet. Yay. <laughs> so that just about wraps it up for our uh, Air Venture 2011 coverage uh, here at Oshkosh, Wisconsin. It's been a very, very busy week. We're all exhausted. We hope that uh, we've been able to give you a bit of a snapshot of uh, what it's like here. We, uh, we did come here with the goal of uh, trying to focus on Australian and uh, Kiwi participation. To be fr- frank with you folks, we had no idea of the scale of this place and uh, it did prove to be more of a challenge. So we did kind of shift gears at one point and uh, we thought it better to uh, just uh, go around and uh, grab whoever we could just to give you a bit of a snapshot of uh, what it's like here. Really the only way that you can really experience air venture now having been here myself is to uh, get yourself in a tour group, get yourself on an aircraft and get yourself over here. I think that's probably the best way. Would you say that, Bez? Absolutely. I'll be back. Oh, mate, I'm... If I can see four Mustangs beat up the field again and again and, uh, you know, DC-3, V-29, V-17, all just flying overhead as casually as ever. Uh, there's been Mustangs flying around the whole time. It's almost getting to the point where I'm like, oh, yeah, that's a Merlin. Yeah. You know, oh, yeah, that'll be a Mustang. <laughs> yeah, it does make you a little blase about it. Well, we'll just about wrap it up. Thanks to everyone uh, who's uh, tuned into the podcast. Thanks for you all for listening. We certainly hope you enjoyed it. Thanks to my wife, Kathy for uh, giving me a three-week leave pass. And thanks to my brother, Adam. Uh, mate, if it uh, hadn't been for that phone call you made, uh, and you know which one it was, this would probably never have happened. And uh, we should thank Grant's uh, wonderful soon-to-be wife, Kit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I'm sure she's missing him. Thanks to uh, to the lovely Shell Vanderhoof, who's uh, allowed David to come across here and be with us. Thanks to Kylie. There we go. We've got all the wives in. And thanks to Melissa Wilson, of course, for allowing Mike to come down here and allow us to trash the van. Uh, I think that's all the thank yous taken care of. Well, let's gather around, boys, and let's do our traditional sign-off. Coming to you from Camp Shoulder here at Adventure 2011. And until we talk to you again, just remember this. It's what's out under that counts. counts. Especially when it comes up and over to Oshkosh. You've been listening to Plane Crazy Down Under with Steve Vischer, Grant McCarran, Dave Vanderhoof and Baz Sheffers. Recorded live at AirVenture 2011 Oshkosh, Wisconsin. Proudly sponsored by JetRide Australia, Crazy Racing, Gibbs Aero, Aviation Advertiser and Thromby Air. Show notes, links to our forum, Facebook fan page, video and photo sites. Our PCDU Twitter feed can be found at plainecrazydownunder.com. For feedback, story ideas and advertising inquiries, drop us a line at any time, plainecrazydownunder at gmail.com. Production facilities at AirVenture were provided by mytransponder.com and supported by Sennheiser, Canon and ICANN. Playing Crazy Down Under is a Southern Skies online media production, a proud member of the Lifestyle Pod Network.